Good morning. Today we're going to be reading Luke 23, 32 through 43. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the Skull, they crucified him there, along with the criminals, one on his right and the other on his left. Jesus said, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they are doing. And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is God's Messiah and the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. There was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of the Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Awesome. Thank you, Liza. So grateful for all of our city kids, city youth, uh, individuals who have been reading for us during the season of Lent. Um, this is a season many of you guys have been walking on this journey with us in the Christian calendar that we follow every year. Uh, Lent is a time of reflection, repentance, examination. Uh, it is, it's not the easiest part of the Christian calendar because it calls us to some uncomfortable things. Uh, but this is one of the reasons why we follow the Christian calendar, these rhythms of our life that we lean into. Like Advent is, is a season of waiting where we wait on the birth of Christ. And Pentecost is a time of realizing the Holy Spirit and the power of the Holy Spirit to move through us. And you have Good Friday is, is a dark time of sitting in the shadow of the cross. Easter, a celebratory time. What the, what the Christian calendar does is it takes us through these rhythms that just orient us back to God. And Lent is a time of, again, repentance. And so it's, one of the things it does is it, it kind of forces us to do things that maybe normally we wouldn't want to do, right? Just to sit in the shadow of the cross for 40 days and week after week leading. It's difficult, but it's transformative. And let me just say this to you. Some of you who have been going on this Lent journey with us, you're fasting things. Um, I want to encourage you. I don't know about you, but this is about the time in my fasting journey where I feel like I'm kind of going like this. Anybody else with me? Where you feel like I started off really strong and I'm kind of limping right now, right? And so I want to finish strong. And so, man, just pick up right where you are. Even if it hasn't been going great, pick up where you are. If you haven't joined us at all, man, it is never a better time to start than right now. And remember, fasting for us is not just giving up something you desire or love, but replacing that thing with more focused attention on God. The focus is not just fasting. The focus is reordering our desires toward Jesus. So we want to fast something in order to fix ourselves to the heart of God. You with me? And so sometimes we get so focused on what we're fasting, we miss to replace it and to focus again on that prayer and more focused attention and allowing this time. We only have a few weeks left leading up to Good Friday and, and Easter. Allow this to be a transformative season for us, a time of examine, again, reflection, repentance. Uh, last week, we left off with the crowds were asking for Barabbas to be released and they were crying out, crucify him. 
Uh, we know in the story, obviously, Pilate uh, gives end to their demands that Jesus is going to be crucified. We see Simon of Cyrene beginning to carry the cross for Jesus. And I'm going to show uh, Luke's gospel this morning because here's what's great, great about the gospels. Each of this gives us a, a different camera angle to the same story. Some of them add certain parts of the story or, or show us certain perspectives that others don't. And Luke's gospel gives us the two thieves or the criminals walking with Jesus to Golgotha, the place of the skull. There's two major themes in Luke's crucifixion narrative that I want to focus in on. Number one is this, the people mock Jesus. Over and over again, Jesus is mocked. The Jewish rulers tell him, if you've saved others, then save yourself. If you truly are the Messiah sent to save others, then, then save yourself. The soldiers give him wine vinegar and tell him, if you're the king of the Jews, again, we get this phrase, save yourself. The one criminal, if you're the Messiah, again, save yourself. If you were with us last week, I talked about all throughout the crucifixion story, there's, it's packed with irony. There's so many ironic statements. The irony of this is that by not saving himself, Jesus is saving them. I want you to think about that for a minute. By not stepping off the cross, by not choosing another way, by not calling the angels to come down and rescue him, he is actually rescuing and saving the very people who are condemning him. It's amazing to think about in this moment just what, what Jesus is doing. So he's mocked. And number two, the theme that Luke gives us is that Jesus forgives. Jesus forgives. The, the, the kind of this idea that they, he just keeps getting mocked, but Jesus just keeps showing and giving grace. Can you imagine in the middle of what, what has been done to you and all these people lying about you and accusing you that he utters the words, Father, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. Who is Father, forgive them? Have you ever thought about them? Because it obviously applies to all of us, but he's talking about the very people who are sending him to the cross, the very people who are mocking him, the soldiers that are mocking him, the Jewish leaders. Father, forgive them because they're not acting in what they know. They're acting in their ignorance. And would your grace and mercy be extended to them? You know how hard it would be to pray that prayer? I mean, for real. And I want to zoom in on Jesus and the criminals on the cross this morning. The first criminal, we know he mocks Jesus. The second criminal, you get these amazing confessions that I don't know if you've ever spent time kind of looking at, but that's what we're going to zoom in on, on this station of the cross this morning. The second criminal, he does this. He, he acknowledges three things. Number one, he acknowledges that God is to be feared. So he looks at the one criminal and says, do you, do you have no fear of God in you? Let me say fear of God is one of those things that kind of eludes us. Because it's, it's like, how do, how do I love God and also fear God? We're not talking about a fear that keeps God at a distance. We're, we're talking about the fear of God, which brings awe and reverence, right? That God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's creator of the universe. And so I stand in awe that God can do all things. And, and it should, at times, we, we should shudder at God's grace and goodness, but also his power and his ability so the, the one criminal would look at the other and says, you're, you're about to die. Is there no fear of God? Do you not fear God? And number two, he acknowledges that I'm getting what I deserve because of my sin. But this man, Jesus, has done nothing. So we see this criminal acknowledging his sin. And then third but not least, he says this, he acknowledges that his biggest problem is not death, but what awaits on the other side of death. How many know that's significant? 
That he doesn't say, save me from the cross and this moment of death. No, Jesus, save me for where I'm ultimately going to be. And then we get two incredible verses in the Bible that Eliza just read for us. Verse 42, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. What a powerful text. What a powerful scripture. There's more irony that Luke wants to show us in his gospel. The irony that the chief priests, the Jewish rulers, and the teachers of the law, all of them fail to understand while a criminal is able to see and articulate what Jesus is doing. In Luke's gospel, the people who should understand, misunderstand. And the people who are outside looking in somehow find their way into the kingdom. It's a great reversal. It's why all of the knowledgeable, religious, rich people in the Gospels are continually ticked off at Jesus because it's the great reversal of that's not why you're in. You're in because of faith. And sometimes your knowledge, your riches, your pedigree, your family background can actually keep you from faith. You think you're in, but you're on the outside looking in. It's amazing how Luke shows us this time and time again that the religious outsider gives more clarity into the character of Jesus than the trained religious professional. If you're ever reading the Gospels, we have to stop and be self-aware enough to look and to say, I know that I always want to put myself as the hero in every story, but is there are times where I play the role of the religious outsider. There are times where I, I, I think that I would be at the cross supporting Jesus, but, but maybe I was again on the outside saying crucify him. If you were last week, we talked about the kingdom of God, that we can't be in God's kingdom while we're building our own kingdom, or we are in essence saying crucify him. Why did Luke choose to tell this part of the story in his gospel? It's because Luke is doing something in his gospel. Remember, each of these gospel writers have a purpose. Matthew is showing us through the Jewish lens of Jesus is the fulfillment of all things Old Testament. Mark is the original gospel. And so Matthew and Luke took most of their narrative from the gospel of of Mark. They plagiarized, all right? Matthew and Luke were taking Mark's gospel. Luke is for the Gentiles. Luke is, 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 he wants to write to the outside, the marginalized, to the women in the first century who were seen as second class. Luke's gospel continually goes outside the boundaries of who's in. That's why I love Luke's. I love that Luke challenges to say who's really in the kingdom of God. It may not be who you think it is. In fact, if you think that you're an insider, you better be careful because that may be the reason that you're an outsider. He's constantly talking to the poor, the despised, the broken, the marginalized, the sorrowful, the oppressed. That's why Luke, just a few chapters earlier than this crucifixion narrative, said this in Luke chapter 14, verse 12. He tells this parable That Jesus said to the host, when you give a luncheon or dinner, don't invite your friends, your brothers or sisters, your relatives or your rich neighbors. If you do, they may invite you back and so you'll be repaid. But when you give a banquet, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, the blind, and you will be blessed. Although they cannot repay you, you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. If you don't remember the story, this is when the man who's throwing the banquet goes out and he begins to invite all of his friends and family. And do you remember everybody has an excuse and none of them are good. And so the first person is like, I bought a field. I can't come. (laughs) Oh, okay, cool. Didn't know that would keep you from the party. The second person is like, nope, just bought some oxen. Got to go try them out. Make sure those oxen walk right, I guess. I don't know. I just got married, so I won't be, att- that's actually a pretty good excuse right there. 
No, none of them are good excuses. And that's what Jesus says. He's like, everybody's got an excuse of why not now? Why can't you walk in obedience? Why can't I, I follow the way of Jesus now? He said, so go out and don't, don't invite those who think they're already in and have an excuse. Find those who are outsiders. The marginalized, the oppressed, those who are down and out. This is the same Luke who tells us that Jesus opens up the scroll in the synagogue and, and goes to the book of Isaiah. And in Luke chapter 4, verse 18, Jesus says, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the, say it with me, good news to the, to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. See, according to the religious people, Jesus celebrated with the wrong people. Jesus dined with the wrong people. He offered peace and hope to the wrong people. And Luke is reminding us something that is so important. Please don't miss this. Luke is reminding us that those who enter the kingdom of God will do so by faith. That's the only thing that gets you in. It's not knowledge, it's not riches, it's not ability, it's not family history, it's not that your grandmother was a prayer warrior, it's not that you grew up in the church, that you went to Wednesday night church too, it's not that you were a Bible quizzer growing up and you had most of the Bible memorized. Come on, anybody actually know what Bible quiz is? Like, yeah, so a few of you. I was the Bible quizzer. I, I literally had most of the New Testament memorized, not because I wanted to learn scripture, because I wanted to beat you in competition. Come on. I'm not going to get to eternity one day and be like, you are a Bible quizzer, you're in right? No. Those who were considered first mocked Jesus and actually sent him to the cross. It's those who are considered last who sought his mercy and received life. Maybe we should think less of ourselves and humble ourselves because guess what? You cannot come to the cross with your fists closed, grabbing onto your life. It just doesn't work that way. We come to the cross like this, the cross is the great equalizer that, guess what, you're not saved because of your background, your good works, or what your parents did, or how you grew up, or that you went to Christian school, or that you never missed church. That's not enough. What's enough is that you have surrendered your life, that you're entering the kingdom by faith. And again, we sometimes claim to be insiders when maybe we're on the outside looking in. I want you to think about what the power of what the criminal says and what Jesus says. When the thief says, remember me, immediately God says, welcome to my kingdom. Welcome to the kingdom of God. I, I want you to think about these words for a minute because what these words will do to you is they will absolutely obliterate any kind of works uh, salvation mentality that you have. If you've ever thought, you know what, I need to go and I need to make things right first and I need to change my past and I need to go do some things in order to come to God, guess what? This thief had no time to do any of that. And yet Jesus said, welcome to my kingdom, right? And there is a part of us, if you're, if, you're, if you're normal, if you're human, that you're like, well, how can I just accept a free gift? I've got to go and I've got to earn it. I've got to do something. But in the moment he says, remember me, God gives him way more than he ever anticipated. I don't think that thief ever anticipated that just by verbalizing and saying that to Jesus, that Jesus would now for eternity invite him into the kingdom. Think about it. He lived 99.999% of his life in absolute rebellion to God. But in that last moment, he turned to God, didn't he? Welcome to my kingdom. Do you think the power of those words? 
This verse absolutely destroys any religious attempts to add certain sacraments or actions to our salvation. And I'm not here to pick on any other denomination, but I've grown up around a lot of people. I've always kind of been an interdenominational person. I've never had something that just fit me. So I've always kind of tried to take the best of what I've been around. I actually got my master's degree at a Church of Christ university where I did a master's of divinity. And, and I loved my Church of Christ friends. I'm not Church of Christ, but I love my friends. And I left that four-year graduate school with a better respect for them and a love for them and their passion for the word of God. But I remember sitting in rooms where they would be debating that baptism is necessary for salvation, right? And it didn't matter the circumstances. If you weren't baptized, then you wouldn't be into heaven. And as much as I respect you, that's inconsistent with what I know about Jesus and who he is, right? In this moment, the thief doesn't get off the cross and be like, well, I really haven't gone into, can you baptize me real quick, then come kill me? That can't happen because baptism is important. Let me tell you that, but it's our response to receiving Jesus and salvation. You grew up in the Catholic church where you haven't taken the sacraments. What happens if you die? Was your faith in Jesus? Because I don't think you're going to get up there and, and, and you're going to look at God and oh, you didn't go through the, the rituals. How is that consistent with what we know of Jesus to be? Not that those things are wrong or bad, but again, we have to place them in the right, the right category, don't we? We have to understand what they are. They're responses to faith. They don't replace it. And in this moment, this is just destroys anything to add to it because he doesn't have time. These are his last moment. There's pictures of God's extravagant grace all throughout the Bible. And we could be here forever and we could talk about these pictures. But in my life, there are just some that just stand out to me. And this would be a cool exercise for you to sit down one time and just what are, the, what are the, the, the stories about Jesus that just blow your mind? That, that Luke chapter 15 describes a son who literally goes and, and just wastes, parties away half of his father's earned estate. And his father still sets out on the street corner looking for his son. He sees a, a silhouette of what he thinks to his son. And when he recognizes him, he begins to sprint after him. I'm going to throw a party for you. No, I don't even want to hear your, your plan to, to be restored. I'm going to restore you. We're going to throw a party for you because my son was lost and now he's found. What an incredible story. Remember the woman caught in adultery in the gospel of John? I mean, literally ripped from her home in the act of adultery. The man got to stay, but she was a woman. So she gets thrown into the, to the, to the middle court and probably wearing little or nothing, publicly humiliated. Jesus looks and says, you without sin throw the first stone and they begin to drop the stones one by one until it's just her and Jesus. Woman, where are your accusers? Who condemns you? Neither do I. Now go and leave your life of sin. What an amazing picture of grace. Amen? The gospel of John meets, Jesus meets a woman at the well. She has three bad things going for her. In the first century, she's a woman, she's a Samaritan, and she has a sexual history. That's, that's 0 for 3. And Jesus meets with her, speaks life into her. She goes and actually helps lead a city and a town to Jesus. Grace. Jesus goes to a town. He passes up all the religious elite people, all the Jewish leaders, and he finds a cheater and a swindler, swindler a small little man named Zacchaeus. Anybody know? We little man was he? He climbed up on the sycamore tree. Some of you, are, you, can't, you can't think of Zacchaeus without singing the song, can you? Every, everybody went, who went to vacation Bible school growing up, Sunday school. Salvation's come to your house today, right? How does Zacchaeus respond to this grace? I'm, I'm going to go back and I'm going to repay everything that I've done. 
because I found salvation. Peter, Peter's one of my favorites. One of my favorite stories of the Bible, and I know I've preached this a lot over the years at City Church, is that Peter thinks his life is over after he's betrayed Jesus three times. I have missed my opportunity. I don't know if you ever know this, but there are two times in the Gospels where Jesus looks at Peter and says, follow me, two separate occasions. The first one is the very beginning as Peter's fishing on the Sea of Galilee. How many know that Peter has no idea what it means to follow Jesus in that moment? He just leaves his nest and he goes. The second time is after Jesus is resurrected, after Peter thinks that it's over and Peter, Jesus looks at Peter and says, do you love me? You know that I love you. Feed my lambs, feed my sheep. Do you love me? Do you love me? And then for the second time in Peter's life, Jesus looks at him and says, follow me. Except this time, you know what it means to follow me. And you're going to give everything. What a picture of, of God's love for us, amen? What a picture of extravagant grace that just doesn't make sense. That we can't go and make things right. That even in our brokenness, that God works through it and he gives us life and abundance. And, and think about the implications of the words that we're reading this morning when, it, when, when Jesus says, today you will be with me in paradise. Think about that. Today you will be with me in paradise. The word paradise that Jesus uses is a transliteration of the Greek word paradisos. It's actually the, the, the very meaning of it is an enclosed preserve, a grove, or a park. What does that mean? Jesus is using Garden of Eden imagery. That what I created you for, I'm going to bring you back to. How many know God didn't mess up when he created us? He created you for fellowship, for communion with him. It was a perfect place. And how many know God's going to bring us back to that place? Now, this is, uh, it, there was a Jewish understanding. This could be a whole sermon in itself. And I, I was like, should I even go here this morning? I'm going to cause more confusion than help. But the Jewish people had very little understanding of the afterlife. It just wasn't given to them. There, there was a place called Sheol where it was a place of the dead. Abraham's bosom is what it's described in the Old Testament, a place of, of holding. Because here's what we do know. There's a lot that we don't know. Here's what we do know. When we die, our souls, our spirits go to a place to be with God until we await the second coming of Christ where we'll experience a bodily resurrection from the dead, right? So one day it's not just going to be your spirit, it's going to be your body that's raised from the dead. If your body's not raised, then you don't have a full gospel theology. So our bodies will be raised from the dead and we will go and be in an eternal state, a final place with Jesus. What, what Jesus is talking about here is the holding place, the intermediate, the in-between that will be with him in spirit, waiting for the full redemption of our bodies. Are you with me? And so there's so much that we don't know about it. But you know what, what I love about what Jesus describes in this? He goes back and says, garden imagery of paradise, garden of Eden, this place with me. And then here's the best part. Today you will be with who? With me. So we know it's going to be a place that looks like the garden. And it's going to be a place where God's presence dwells. How many know that's going to be enough for us? And so sometimes we sit around, and I remember being in so many rooms throughout the years in theological studies, debating what it was going to be like. What, is, what was that intermediate place? What's, what, all I know is the presence of God will be there. And where the presence of God is, we will be at peace. We will find life. Luke shows us again that Jesus saves the most lost. The swindlers, the prostitutes, the poor, the criminals about to die are all able to find Jesus in their life or even in the last moments. I think paradise, 
uh, to be honest with you, is the constant hope for us all. I think sometimes we constantly go looking for paradise. It's, it's, it's actually the reason why we want to go on vacation. We want to escape. Don't, don't we want to like try to find our little piece of paradise? It's like, I just want to get away for a minute and I want to go, like some of you, paradise is sitting on the beach, right? That's just not my paradise. You give me a fly fishing rod and you put me in a small stream in the mountains and I am like, this is heaven. This is paradise. This is it. Now, for some of you, like you got your own little piece of paradise that you can put, we go searching for it. But how many know the best paradise still falls short, doesn't it? The best paradise leaves us wanting more. My, my wife and I, we've been married almost 15 years now. And uh, when we went on our, our honeymoon, we went to the British Virgin Islands and none of us had been down in that area before. And so like we had been to the beach, but now like we went to the beach. Come on now, like the sand, the, the water, like it, it was amazing. We were on a beach at time. We were the only people on the beach. It was amazing, like four or five days of absolute paradise. Then the day that we left, we had to take a small little boat to a little island where we were going to fly out. So it was like six in the morning. We ate a little bit of breakfast and the water was so choppy that we both got sick. And so my wife is hanging off the back of the boat. My wife of one week was hanging off the back of the boat, feeding the fish. I throw up because I see her throwing up. <laughs> Anybody like that? You're like, I wasn't sick until I saw you sick. And, I'm, I'm, and like, we're, we're both so sick and we have these small little plane rides to get there. I am on Thanksgiving break in my graduate degree. I literally have a paper that I have to turn in that day and we're in the airport. I am walking around DFW airport with my laptop open trying to find Wi-Fi to send in my, to send in my last paper. How many know paradise ended really quickly for us? <laughs> I literally was taking finals the next day for graduate school back into both of us working full-time job and me going to school full-time. We got our little taste of paradise. And how many know it, it's great, but doesn't it leave you wanting more? Because it's incomplete, isn't it? I think we search for a paradise in our jobs, in our kids, in our relationships, in our marriage, and the trips that we take. We envy people when we think they found it, don't we? Or when we go online and we're like, man, you just live in constant paradise, but that's the only part they show you on social media. You don't see the other part. We believe we're also always one step away from finding it. So many people are so emotionally exhausted, and yet they continue to search and pursue it. We live like treasure hunters. We're always like thinking that the treasure is just right around the corner. Anybody ever watch the like treasure hunter shows on TV or like those gold shows? Anybody watch the gold shows where they dig and nobody watches that? Nobody in this room watches. Oh, thank you. I get sucked into those shows. I know how they end. They never find it. But I'll watch nine episodes of like, they're really close. Because I am just wired that way. I really am. I was the kid with the metal detector going around. Like my, my, my grandma and grandpa were in the oil business in Pauls Valley, Oklahoma. And I would go around with the metal detector. And like, I, I think I'm going to find treasure in Pauls Valley in an open field. And I would like come across something and I'd be digging it up. It was like an old oil part, right? Because that's all that was ever there. But I just kept digging because like, I'm, I'm one like, I'm just one moment away from finding it. Don't we live that way? Looking for paradise? I think Paul sums this up really, really well for us. And I want to end this morning with this passage from Romans chapter 8. And I want you to look at the words that Paul uses in verse 22. He says, we know that the whole creation has been groaning. As in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. 
Not only so, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for our adoption to sonship, the redemption of our bodies. And maybe you've read that before, but I want you to think about this for a minute. What The imagery that Paul gives, gives us when he says, the whole of creation, this is you and I, all that God has created are groaning as in the pains of childbirth. How many know that childbirth is difficult? Come on, moms, that was your moment. Say amen. I've witnessed it firsthand four times. I had to sit down, right? Because I'm a pansy. <laughs> you go, baby. I got to sit down. I'm, I'm, <laughs> this is too much for me to watch. Paul's literally like, we are groaning as in pains because why are we groaning? Because we're not there. We're groaning because we're not there, but we want to be. And so literally all of creation is groaning and waiting because this is not paradise. Amen? Some of you right now, you're like, no, it is not. You're going through things. It's not paradise. And so we, we groan. I, I did, if you're following our Lent devotional last week, I did a, one of our podcasts, Lent podcasts on blessed are those who mourn for they will be comforted. I spent most of my life and I was like, I don't really get that beatitude. I don't want to mourn. I don't want to have to go through something. Blessed are those who mourn because you realize things aren't as they're supposed to be. Right? No, this is not what God designed me for. God doesn't want me to go through this pain and suffering. God doesn't want me to experience physical death. And yet the results of sin and death are here. But God is restoring, right? And so we groan. We're waiting. We know that we're not going to get paradise here. But we know that God has prepared that for us, right? In light of the story that we read this morning, I think there's a few responses that we can have. Number one is, this morning, maybe you just need to receive God's grace. And you're like, Pastor, that's really simple. Yeah, it, it sounds simple, but how many know it's hard to do? To receive God's grace. Not just to receive it, but rest in it. Like, can you rest in God's grace? Let, let, me, let me expound on this just for a second. I wasn't planning on talking about this, but let's, let's do it anyway. Resting in God's grace means that you don't walk, up, walk every day living with this weight of, am I enough? And what does my future hold? Resting in God's grace means I am so confident in the goodness of God that I can rest in the place that I'm at, knowing that he's with me. And he's prepared a place for me. So that means I don't even worry about tomorrow because I can rest in God's grace right now. It, it, it's not easy, is it? Like it sounds simple, but it's not easy to do. Some of you this morning, you need to rest in that grace. That God's grace is there for you. God's goodness is at work in your life. That God has prepared a place for you. And so you don't need to worry. You don't need to worry about tomorrow. Even Jesus says, guess what? Tomorrow's going to have a lot enough troubles of its own. So rest in my grace today. My grace is going to be sufficient for you. That your sons and daughters, not because of what you've done, not because of what someone said, but because of who Jesus is, receive God's grace, rest in God's grace. And then like we have done every week of this Lent series, as we're about to come to the, to the table together and we come to the cross, how many know we come to the cross empty-handed? So this is a time every week during Lent, we examine our hearts. 
In fact, if you are just right where you're at, just close your eyes. If we could just examine our hearts in this moment. God, if there is anything that I am seeking life in, and that thing is not you, would you rip that from me? God, if there is anything that I turn to, is there is anything that I look to in moment of crisis or need instead of you, I don't want that thing. Help me, Father, in my weakness. Help me in my struggle. God, help me turn to you empty-handed. At the foot of the cross, Father, I, I lay down my crown. I lay down my pride. God, all I want is more of you. God, search my heart. Search us this morning, Father. In this season of Lent, look deep inside of us, shine the spotlight of your Holy Spirit on the places of our souls and, and show us if there's things. All of us have our things. Father, there's, right now there's things that are coming to mind that when I'm pressed, when I'm put in the fire, I want to retreat to that thing. I want to go find that. I want, I want to numb the pain. I want to, I want to try to get through it with this, with this thing even a search for other things. Father, help me to turn to you. Rip those things off of the throne of my heart. God, we thank you for that. We thank you for the difficult season of Lent. We thank you that you walked the road, the cross for us to give us life. It is in response to that, Father, we give you all of our lives. God, empty-handed, we come before you. We thank you for that. If you would this morning, stand to your feet with me across this room. Go ahead and begin to prepare your communion elements we're going to take in just a minute. If you're here this morning, we practice open communion here at City Church. What that means is that anybody who is hungry for more of Jesus, you're welcome to come to the table with us. If you do not know Jesus as Lord and Savior this morning, let me invite you to take him during this time. Did you notice in the passage that we just read, uh, there's nothing wrong with this, but Jesus didn't look over at the criminal and said, hey, would you repeat after me? Um, and then lead him through the sinner's prayer, right? There's nothing wrong with saying the sinner's prayer, but God knows your heart, doesn't he? And even in this moment, you can cry out to God in your own way. And guess what Jesus will say to you? Welcome to my kingdom. Welcome to my kingdom. It's open for you who are hungry and thirsty and recognize that you're sinful and that you need me. Welcome to my kingdom. As we're about to take, if you're in this room this morning and you just need to take Jesus, man, just take him as Lord and Savior. In your own way, right where you're at. It's you recognizing you can't save yourself. You need to be saved and rescued. And to make him Lord, which means every part of your life you now give over to him. Every single area. For the rest of us who are coming to the table this morning, we do this every week to recenter our hearts because how many know we wander and we stray really easily, don't we? We lose sight of who we are. We get wrapped up in a world that says, no, you're this, you're that, you're Democrat, you're Republican, you gotta be on this side or that side. You failed here, you won here. And we come back to the table every week to say, none of those are our primary identity, right? No, our identity is... We're citizens of the kingdom of heaven. Jesus is everything to us. We're sons and daughters because of what he said. 
So as we take this morning, remind yourself who you are. You're not what you've done. You're not what somebody else has said. You're not your performance. You're loved by your heavenly father. On the night Jesus was betrayed, he took the bread and he broke it. And he said, this is my body that's been broken for you. As often as you do this, remember me. Let's take the bread together. And Jesus took the cup that he would bleed on the cross for them to cover their sin, their shame, our sin, our shame, so that one day you and I are going to stand before God and we don't have to fear, do we? Because God sees the blood of Jesus upon our life and not our past and not our sin. Amen? Let's take together. Would you take just a few seconds of thankfulness and gratitude in your own words right where you're at? May this never become old to you. Don't just go through the motions. Father, thank you that you have rescued us. Thank you for the work of Jesus that has saved us. Thank you for the cross that you did not save yourself, but you died for me. Thank you that the angels didn't come and take you away or that you chose something different from the cross, but thank you that you gave your life for us. As we walk out of this room in a few minutes, would we live from that overflow? Would we live from a place of gratitude and thankfulness? A place of, God, that you're so much alive in us that we flow out in love to others and to a world that's hurting and that's in need. Father, we thank you for it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We invite our prayer team down if you're in the room, any of our elders and trustees in the room. Before you leave, if you need prayer for anything this morning, you just want someone to agree with you for you, for someone else, physical healing. Maybe you made a decision to follow Jesus. Don't leave before you stop and pray with somebody. Uh, if you're a first-time guest, I'd love to meet you in the, just across the lobby in the welcome room. we got a free gift for you. And then uh, next week, one of my best friends, one of the smartest guys on the planet, uh, one of the greatest missionaries I've ever met, Stephen Kurt, uh, Stephen and Bailey. Oh, man, he's got a following. Um, Stephen and Bailey, uh, they, they home out of City Church, but right now they're even in Africa traveling back, doing church planning all over the world. Stephen's going to be sharing with us next Sunday. If you've never heard Stephen speak, it's, it's really, really good. So make sure you join us. Let's end with our mission statement. Go live it out wherever you are. Be the gospel.